The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Last Sunday, we finished up Genesis, and today we begin 1 Timothy. I'm very excited to be with you in 1 Timothy. I hope the verses that we read together out loud will become ones that you memorize. They're really the theme for what we're doing, 1 Timothy three fourteen through 15. But I am writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. That is why I've titled our series First Timothy, but I've subtitled it How to Church. God has written to us this letter so we know how to church. The pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, are very important instruction for how to church. Now at this point, let's just be honest, some of you are already ready to check out. Church? <laughs> I don't want to hear about the church for several weeks. I want to hear about something that seems to more directly impact me. I mean, aren't we people that are just about the gospel and what's going on in our own lives? Let me try to speak to that for a couple moments. I could start with the answer that kind of a father gives to his uh, child. Well, because God told us this, right? So we read in 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures breathed out by God, all of it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training, and for instruction in righteousness. So God wrote all the Bible. We need all of it so that we can be thoroughly equipped to every good work. But granting that God told us this, why do we need to know about the church? How would that be beneficial to us? Let me start by saying this. Um, Just because something is penultimate, like second of importance, doesn't mean that it's unimportant. So admittedly, something might be a first and something may be a second and something may be a third. But something that is of second is not of no importance. Let me illustrate that. Imagine you're skydiving. Let's say we could all agree that skydiving of first importance is that you have a parachute. What we might say of second importance is that you know how to pull the cord. That's not unimportant, is it? (laughs) You need both, right? Um, All right, let me try to illustrate it again. When Steph and I got engaged, I remember being so nervous that night. We, uh, I was so nervous. We were reaching our hands over. It was, it was Christmas Eve. It was in Michigan. There was snow on the ground. It was freezing. And I borrowed my dad's coat. She was wearing my dad's coat. I was wearing my coat. We were out in the field holding hands. I was so nervous that I remember there was a candle that was burning her coat jacket. <laughs> and she said, my coat's on fire. And I said, that's not important right now. <laughs> So anyway, she said yes. (laughs) But imagine if when I gave her the engagement ring, I I didn't have the ring, but only a diamond. And I handed her just a diamond and said, here you go. And she said, what am I supposed to do with this? And I said, well, just, you know, try to hold on to it. Keep it in your pocket. All right, now, didn't you catch 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. If I give her a diamond and there's no prongs, She's going to lose the diamond. See, actually the gospel will be lost if there is no church. The church is the pillar and support of the diamond. 
Now, it's not more important than the diamond. First Corinthians 15 is right. What I deliver to you of first importance is that Christ buried, well, he died, he was buried, and he rose according to the scriptures. The central truth is what Christ has done. That central truth, though, is preserved and held and made radiant through its support, which is the church. So here's what I'm going to say up front. You're going to think I'm being hyperbolic, and I pray that God, through his word, will convince you of this claim over time. There is actually nothing on earth that will have more practical significance in your life than the church of which you are or are not a part. There is nothing on earth which will have more practical significance in your life other than the church in which you are or are not a part. If your church is healthy and biblical, it will impact you tremendously well. If your church is unhealthy and unbiblical, it will harm you beyond what you think. And if you choose not to church, it will have a greater impact than you can estimate. So what God is telling us here is the truth. He has told us how to live in the church because of its incredible impact on us. I was recently reading Carl Truman, and he said this. He said, each of us, in a sense is the sum total of the network of relationships we have and the environment in which we live. You know he's right. Because you know so much of your life really has been shaped by the people you're closest with. Think of how when your people group changed, your values did eventually as well. The people that you people with are the people who enflesh truth. Now, Truman wrote this before COVID. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important. He wrote, the world in which we now witness is a community in flux. The nation state no longer gives identity. Many cities are anonymous places. Suburbs function as a giant commuter motel. The loss of commercial town centers and the rise of the Internet have detached people from real communities. We now use bizarre phrases such as online community. (laughs) These phrases, of course, make no sense in reality, but they've come to make sense in our parlance because they've been evacuated from the notion of bodily proximity and presence. He wrote this before COVID. He then concluded, One might indeed be tempted to despair at this point if it were not for the fact that human beings still need to belong, to be recognized, to have community, and for this reason the church needs to be a strong community. I want to rejoice in what I've seen God do through Emmanuel. I see many uh, insights into a strong community. I'm so grateful for a church that even just this week I was reminded when one of our members passes, so many of us come together and are there in flesh to serve and to care and to love on that family. I've seen that when there are birthdays celebrated, many parts of the church get together and love on that person. When there's a new birth, we come together and support. When one of us is called home, we come together and grieve. As I've been saying for two years, regardless of what the world does, don't forget this. The church is not a content you download and consume. The church is a community where you're known and loved. We must not let the world steal that. In flesh community is what God has actually called us to. So here are the verses again. I know you're going to have them memorized by the end of the series, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When society decays, don't be discouraged. 
That's a great time to get down to the definitional level of truth. Actually, if 50 or 60 years go by and we all think we mean the same thing by a term, and then we realize we never meant the same thing by a term, it's actually a great thing. We used to use the word human or the word male or the word female, and we all thought we knew what that meant. We now realize we don't all know what that means. And the same has happened with the word church. That's a great opportunity to get back to the Bible and let God define it for us. So as we go through this, God will give us a definition of the church that he has revealed in his word. And at Emmanuel, what a blessing it will be for us. God has been refining his church by scripture for 2,000 years, and he's been refining Emmanuel since 1950. And yet we want, by God's grace, to be the most biblically faithful church imperfect sinners can be this side of heaven. Towards that end, this morning, uh, when we have the ministry conference, you'll notice in the fellowship hall, several of our deacons for the last 18 months have been writing bylaws to help make us as clearly conformed to Scripture as safe sinners possibly can. That kind of continual aligning with the Word, which surely will need to happen again, is a great thing. Is a great thing. So let us not overlook First Timothy and the pastoral epistles. And let us not roll our eyes when we hear about the church. R. Kent Hughes wrote 20 years ago, We must take to heart that First Timothy is imperative for us who know and serve Christ today. Sadly, there is widespread neglect of the pastorals by evangelicals because these books are so direct in delicate matters such as church discipline, qualifications for leadership, and the roles of male and females. He continues, The resulting neglect of the pastorals of people who claim to be people of the book is unconscionable. And his last sentence is so important. If we do not allow Scripture to define the church, the forces of culture will. So hear this this morning. We don't want the world to define or dictate what is God's. They won't get it right. So let's walk through First Timothy and let God form his church as he wants. Now look with me in verse 1. These introductory words give us a clue of where we're going. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Notice how many of these words clearly hint towards the gospel. An apostle is one who's seen the risen Christ and has been commissioned by him to declare him. Notice how God is described here, not as our strength, not as our all-knowing one. All those descriptions would be true, but here Paul focuses on God the Father as our Savior. And of Christ Jesus, notice, as our hope, our eternal security. Even verse 2, these are all gospel phrases. Timothy, my true child in the faith, meaning his son in the gospel. Grace, mercy, and peace, all clearly terms that are realities from the gospel. From the God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so you'll not be surprised what my two big points are today. If you have a bulletin, they're on there for you. If you don't, I'll try to make them simple so that following along is as easy as it can be. Just two big points today. Number one, promote the true gospel. And number two, marvel in the true gospel. Those are the two big points. You know me, you know I'll have sub points under, underneath them, but the two big points promote the gospel 
and then marvel in the true gospel. So number one, promote the true gospel. It's verses 3 through 11. Look with me in God's Word in verse 3. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now what does Paul mean by doctrine? Look down in verse 11 just so that you see how he inclusios, he bookends, This section, he begins with no different doctrine. What's that doctrine he wants to protect? Verse 10 ends, contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel. So I didn't make up those points (laughs) that I gave today. The gospel is what Paul's talking about. That's what he means by doctrine throughout this section. The gospel surely has a narrow meaning of what Jesus has done, but it also is rightly used to describe all of God's revelation in the Bible. So Paul is saying we must not allow anything other than the revelation of God to be taught or followed. Verse 4 tells us how we can be tempted to follow things other than God's revelation. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So brothers and sisters, here's our first sub-point Underneath number one, this would be a letter A. We must keep our focus on God's clear revelation in the Bible. We must not be drawn away to speculations. Notice how the two S's in the ESV are contrasted. There's novel things you can speculate about, or you can just humbly steward what God has already said. You can be okay with thinking God's thoughts after him, or you can have itching ears on topics that are extraneous. The danger is looking to the marginal things and making them the message, rather than focusing on God's clear revelation. This is a danger for us all. Don't think it's only a first century danger. We have to admit today we have access to more trivia than we've ever had, and less wisdom, perhaps, than we've ever had. We live in a moment where it's so easy for dust to accrue on our Bibles while our thumbs callous from scrolling through endless minutiae. Here in this passage, then, Paul is telling us, don't let your gaze go to marginal myths, but find joy in the stewardship of what God has revealed. Surely we still need this reminder. Verses 5, 6, and 7 take it even further. The aim of our charge is love. Now, our culture talks a lot about love. Here would be a good definition of what real love is. Okay, ready? Love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion Desiring to be teachers of the law, and I love this, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Winston Churchill was once at a meeting where different people were speaking, and this one very hot-aired gentleman finally got done and sat down, and Churchill got up and said, that was a man who didn't know what he was going to say before he got up, didn't know what he was saying while he was speaking, and when he sat down, didn't know what he had just said. (laughs) That's a great explanation. Verse 7 is a very similar description. Don't ever be ashamed of Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. We live in an era, just like the first century, of much confident assertions that are actually empty. People make many demands and claims without content that is rooted in truth. So the second application underneath number one, letter B, if you're a note-taker. Exercise humble faith in Scripture rather than claiming influence outside of it. Notice verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law. They have ambition, but not aptitude. Are there not many people that want to be influencers that yet really don't have scriptural content? Uh, Professor D.A. Carson, I think, illustrated this well. He talked about, um, he, he's, he's a well-known author and writer, and so unsurprisingly, the burden that comes with that is you get letters from people all over the world. And not, not all of them are worth reading. One of the letters he received was a man who was very, very upset that in Carson's commentary on John, he refers to Jesus as Jesus rather than calling him the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the letter, the guy said that Carson's book should be pulled and that unless he uses the full title every time, it should be taken down. Carson simply replied, I'm just using the language John actually uses. He doesn't always say the full title. He often just says Jesus. The man couldn't accept it, though. It was a tirade that he wouldn't receive. Carson explains that he gets letters like this all the time. So he wrote, Paul, of course, has particular opponents in mind, and they don't exactly match First Timothy 1. Nevertheless, in every generation, there are people circulating in and around the church who focus on false doctrines and devote themselves to peripheral matters. One chap I taught in evening school became convinced he had the key to the Scriptures by some elaborate typology of the circumcision. Another has written me from Australia offering a massive synthesis that is remarkably silly and condemning all the publishers who are so narrow-minded that they won't give his views the airing they deserve. Yet another has written voluminous and repeated letters insisting I publish his manuscript because, you know, the world needs to read it. What these people have in common is false doctrine, a focus on peripheral matters, a distortion of what's central, and the arrogance that discloses itself in meaningless talk, and yet the conviction that you must be a teacher. What they lack is in verse 5. Notice what true love does, is it issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We must promote the true gospel. We must not be taken by the silly things that people would draw our attention to. Promoting the true gospel finally means that we respect God's revealed intention in the entirety of his revelation. So in verse 7, Paul said, These people want to be teachers of the law, but they actually don't know what they're talking about. But the law itself, when it's understood as God intends it, is a good thing. So now look in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, if they actually do know what God's intention for the law was. We'll notice in the verses that follow, God's intention for the law can never be understood apart from the gospel. Verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, that's a common term to describe the Christian, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Those early descriptions, many commentators have noted, are similar to the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. They deal vertically with our relationship with God. 
The remaining descriptions are very similar to the remainder of the Ten Commandments. They deal horizontally in our relationships with others. Notice the next one. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Surely you hear an echo of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. The sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. Surely you hear the commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. I skipped murderers, sorry, at the end of verse 9, which would be the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The next word, enslavers, which means to kidnap, thou shalt not steal, the eighth commandment. Liars and perjurers, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And a a full catch-all here, whatever else, which is kind of close to the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the law is good. When it's used as God intends. So how does God intend the law to be used? At least primarily, at least what is its main purpose? And the answer is the law's purpose is to reveal our sin. So it will bring us to God. Martin Luther said this about the law. The law is a mighty hammer intended to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sin. And by the recognition of their sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and thereby long for grace. See, Paul's point is clear. If you're going to proclaim the law in this dark and diseased world, do it as an entrance to the gospel, not as a ladder for achievement. Now, let's pause here for a second, because Paul just listed a number of sins that, frankly, you and I might be uncomfortable calling sin. I know as a pastor that even just the mention of sin, I often see people shift uncomfortably in their pew. And surely you know in your workplace, if you mention sin, you may see people seethe, perhaps to dismiss you from your profession. How dare you call something sin? This is what someone wants. This is their identity. This is what makes them happy. How could you declare that it is wrong? Now, if you feel overwhelmed by that and you feel like, man, it's so hard to live in 2022, you should know that this is not a new problem. 500 years ago, John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I've been reading it to my children recently. Do you know that part in The Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim, because of the law, realizes he has a burden on his back? And remember when he goes around and tells people, I need to figure out how to get this burden off my back. And don't forget this, no one else sees it. Why don't they, why don't they see the burden he has? Because they haven't heard the law. You see, you must be convicted until you realize you have a burden. And until you realize of a burden, you won't go to Calvary for it to be lifted. The revelation of the burden is so, so important. We must not be afraid to call sin, sin. In the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon became one of the most impactful preachers of the gospel. But long before he did, he struggled with his sinfulness. And so in his autobiography, he wrote this. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned. To hate the evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. If we're not clear on sin, how would anyone ever realize how great a Savior Jesus is? 
You know the great irony of our cultural moment. While we try to scrub away words like sin, we're actually arguably the most guilty generation in American history. Wilfred McClay, I came across this week. He's a professor from Oklahoma and now at Hillsdale, as I was learning. And he wrote an article that I read this week. The article he wrote is called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. He's writing in a secular vein. He's saying, why do we all feel so guilty if we've become more secular? He gives a couple answers. He says, now we have an infinite extensibility of our guilt, meaning our guilt now has a widening circle that includes more and more beyond human capability. He then says, we have a preoccupation with stolen suffering. It's a little heady, but here's what he means by that. He means, in order to feel less guilty, we claim that we're a victim, because if I'm a victim, then I'm not responsible. And if I'm more a victim than you're a victim, then I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as you are. So David Brooks, who wrote in the New York Times, uh, was commenting on Wilfred's article, and I thought what Brooks had to say was brilliant. He said, technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, which leads to guilt. You see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and you know inwardly, I must not be doing enough. He adds, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it could never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. He says, then the only reliable way to feel morally justified in that culture is to assume the role of victim. Claiming victim status is the sole sure means left of absolving oneself and securing one's sense of fundamental moral innocence. Now here's what Brooks for the New York Times concludes by writing. Despite the rise of secularism, we're still driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. And I can't believe his final sentence. People have a sense of guilt and sin, but there is no formula for redemption. So the New York Times ends by saying, we all feel guilty, but there's no way to get past it. Now here's the good news of verses 12 through 17. Look at this. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In a world of guilt, there is cleansing. In a world of burden, there is release. And here's what it is. God saves sinners by mercy and according to grace.
What the world looks for and the world longs for will never be found there, but it is received in Jesus. Paul's testimony is not a me story. It's a God story. Here's what God has done. Notice, brothers and sisters, God changes us. Look in verse 13. I was formerly this. We should never be afraid of that kind of biblical terminology. As Christians, of course, we can never say I'm all that I ought to be. But we all should be able to say, I thank God I'm not what I was. First Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. And Ephesians 4.28 says, let him who stole steal no more. And you could switch any sin in that. See, in this passage, Paul says God has changed me. But notice the change isn't even really the reason that he rejoices. The change is just a benefit. What he rejoices in is that God saves. So verse 15 He uses a formula that he'll use six times in the pastoral epistles. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's a way of saying, listen up. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then notice how he describes himself near the end of his life. Of whom I am the foremost. Did you catch that? He didn't say of who was the foremost. But who is the foremost. Maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you've been safe for a long time, surely you don't feel bad about your sin anymore. An old commentary I read it's a couple hundred years ago put it this way. The fact is, it is always characteristic of a true saint to feel himself a real sinner. The air in a room appears to be clear, but when it's penetrated by the sunlight, it is seen to be full of dust and impurities. And so as men draw nearer to God and are penetrated by the light of God, they see more clearly their own infirmities. And being to feel for sin something of the hatred which God feels for it. Don't you relate? As a Christian, haven't you found over the decades as a Christian, you've actually become more acutely aware of how holy God is and how sinful you are. But doesn't that move you to say, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. See, verse 16 goes on to say that I received mercy. How can a man say, I am as bad as it gets Because he knows how incredible the mercy of God is. See, in verse 16, Paul says, I receive mercy that in me, the worst, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, notice, as an example to all who were to believe. The mercy God gave Paul is the mercy God could give anyone. The point is, if God saves people like Paul, he'll save anybody. In 1918, Tokyo, Tokichi, Ichi, that is the coolest name. (laughs) Tokyo Tokichi Ichi was hung for murder. But before he received his death sentence, he received a New Testament. Two Christian missionaries, Miss West and Miss McDonald, had gone over to Japan. And they heard about him and they brought him a New Testament in his cell. When he read the New Testament, he came to know Christ. And he wrote this. I accept my fate as the fair, impartial judgment of God. One of the days that the two missionaries visited him, they highlighted for him 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, which says that many may be made rich through the suffering. And he wrote this. 
The poor making many rich surely does not apply to the evil life that I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ. And so many may come to repent also. And though it may be that I am poor myself, perhaps through me, God may make many rich. On the day Tokyo Tokichi Ichi was hung, his last words were, My soul purified today returns to the city of God. Also, when we think of God saving the worst of sinners, how can we not think of John Newton? John Newton's mother shared the Bible with him when he was a boy. At age seven, his mother died. At age 11, John Newton took his first of six seafaring trips with his father. By 1748, John Newton was on board a slave ship called the Greyhound. He, at this point in his life, had become a slave trader, doing horrific and awful things all over the world. That particular year, that ship was about to go down, and he remembered some of the biblical phrases his mother had taught him, and he did something he had never done before. He prayed for God's help. God did, in his grace, allow him to survive. When Newton came back, he repented of his life as a slave trader, and he became the pastor of a small English church, which is where he wrote, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Maybe you grew up singing the song, To God Be the Glory, which says, The vilest offender, the moment he believes, that moment from Jesus, full pardon receives. See, Paul is thrilled at this. God the Son has come down to earth, he totally innocent, has died for me totally guilty. And he left the cross saying, it is finished. And he didn't stay there. He left an empty tomb. And that means all the impending guilt against me is permanently and forever gone. My sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. God saves sinners. And so verse 17 is the song any saved singer sings. To the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps this morning you need to be saved by the great Savior. No matter how sinful you feel, no matter how much guilt you carry, Jesus is a greater Savior. And you cannot sin the cross. But perhaps this morning you just need to rejoice in what is the foundational chapter of 1 Timothy. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that through him we might be made the righteousness of God. So let me give some applications for us. We already saw from chapter 3, 14 through 15, this letter is being written so that we would know how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So how does chapter 1 teach Emmanuel how we should live? Let me give you four thoughts on that. First, let's remember what we are. Here's the first definition we have from chapter 1. We're going to have much more than this, but from chapter 1 we have this so far. Here's what a church is. A church is a community of saved sinners. 
Let me ask you something. How do you think a church's culture would be if we all thought of ourselves this way? Not, hey, I used to be the worst of all sinners, but you know what? I am the worst of all sinners. How much friction do you think we'd have with one another if every time we come in we're thinking, I am such a sinner, but God is such a great Savior? Man, it's hard to find fault in one another if you have such clarity of who you are in light of God's glory. Ray Ortland put it this way. He said, we live in a world of guilt without a solution. But then on Sunday, we should walk into a new kind of community where we discover an environment of grace in Christ alone. It is so refreshing. Sinners like us can breathe again. It's as if God changes everyone's topic of conversation of what is wrong with us, which is plenty, to what is right with Christ, which is endless. He replaces our negativity and finger-pointing and self-hatred with the good news of His grace to the undeserving. Who wouldn't want to live in a community like that? God's purpose for His church, first from chapter 1, is that we are humbled by the fact that God saves sinners of whom we are the worst. In fact, the church is meant to highlight the gospel in everything she does. That's why we have the ordinances. People are baptized so that we see that Christ died and was buried and was risen for our sin. We have communion once a month so that we come together and say, look at how his body was broken for us. Look at how he bled for us. Our sins are many, but look at what he did to save us from them. So number one is a church must be a culture of great sinners with a greater Savior. But now number two, we, Emmanuel, must never move our attention to the marginal but keep our focus on the biblical. We must never move our attention to the marginal, but keep our focus on the biblical. Frankly, who cares about the extra-biblical speculations? Those are endless. The internet never ends. It just loops on and on and on. But the Bible is contained with all we need for life and godliness. And number three, Emmanuel, we must never be afraid to call sin, sin. Because we're not afraid that God is a great Savior of sinners. I know that in Raleigh, especially the closer you get to downtown, the more unlikely it is that the church you enter into will read the verses I read today. But that's how people get saved. Are we really going to deny that we're sinners? If we are, let's just pull the cross down and do something else. The church is a place where God saves sinners. So we're not afraid to call sin, sin. But fourth, church... Our highest delight is doxology. Verse 17 must always be where we're driving to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, be honor and glory and blessing forever. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Father, drive us to doxology because that is history's purpose. We were made to praise the Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised. But one of the clearest ways we understand your worthiness of worship is when we realize how holy you are and how sinful we are. 
Lord, let your light break into this room and into our hearts so that our imperfections are inarguable. So that Christ's forgiving blood is more marvelous. Give us biblical language. My sin was crimson. He has washed it white as snow. How would we ever marvel at being washed if we're afraid to talk about how dirty we are? So thank you, Lord, for this clarity from the law that tells us that we are liars, that we are sexually impure, that we are profane, that we are godless, that we disregard our parents, that we steal what is not ours, that we work against sound doctrine. We are sinners, God. And so we are amazed that you would send your son, the perfectly pure, holy Jesus, to bear the sin of humanity so that we could be forgiven. We praise you, Lord, that Jesus has died and risen for our sin. So let our church be one, that we are a culture of grace because we recognize what we've been forgiven from and are still, frankly, being forgiven from. And let that grace give us a winsome clarity about the grace that is availed to any who will come and be washed by the blood. Lord, to you be all glory this morning. We thank you for who you are. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.